starting this series from Hebrews, and um, let's jump right in. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Being a a pastor, a leader, a minister of a church is a huge privilege. I know Phil would echo that. There's a lot of of beautiful things, of moments of great joy, of of seeing people when the penny drops and and Jesus kind of enters into their life, that journey of people, whether through Alpha or other, who are seeking and their eyes, spiritual eyes are open and they realize Jesus died for them and was buried, and he rose again, and he's now seated at the throne, and there's that, that joy of salvation. It's just tremendous. Or when we see someone, Philip's nodding, and, uh, and David's too, because he's a retired one, uh, not Baptist one, an Anglican one, but also when we see people baptized, and when we see people understand the call of God on their life, and 
they step out in faith in whatever way that and shape that would be at work or in, t- in sensing a vacation or a call. It is just fantastic of seeing faith transferred from grandparent to parent to, to younger people, children or grandchildren. It is marvelous to see when we see young people taking those first steps of faith. When we see people contending for the kingdom, for praying and interceding, it is so heartening because we're seeing Jesus at work. And one of the things we want to do as a church fellowship is is continue to give testimony to that because it encourages us. I hope that's true for you when you see and understand that God is at work, when he's healed, when he's restored life, when people remain faithful, even when the circumstances would seem to be most stormy. But there's a flip side. There's a time in ministry that is really, really difficult. It's, it's heartbreaking. And there's times where it seems things are, we're just so powerless. Obviously, the, the times when people go through the real struggles and trials of life. And we pray and we pray. And we pray for healing and contend for a change in those circumstances. And people ask those really deep, poignant questions. Where is God? I don't feel him. I don't sense him. What I knew to be true seems to have vanished like the morning mist. Or when we journey with people and we begin to discern, but it's really hard to address, when faith starts to wane. When that commitment and passion for Jesus that we have perceived and seen and nurtured and and sought to encourage and grow seems to just maybe be put on the back burner of coasting, perhaps. But then gradually, perhaps implicitly, a deceleration, a, a beginning to stand still, to be disinclined. And when people, for whatever reason, write to us or speak to us and say, I don't want to follow this way anymore. I don't want to be part of what the Lord is doing. I'm just going to go it alone now. I found another way. It's really tough. In many ways, all of those experiences are true for us. Maybe in your experience, those times with real passion and delight of walking faithfully with the Lord, but other times when it is tough, when it seems that those things that have encouraged and supported those friends, uh, lively worship or sensing the presence of God seem not to be as obvious. Someone said something to you, you've taken offense, you've taken a step back. There's something going on in life that's really tough and it just... You don't know where to go. You're praying and crying out to the Lord, change this, change this. And it becomes hard to stay in that place of vibrant faith. I won't ask you to put your hands up, but I'm pretty sure you know what I mean. My friends in in India are facing a particular uh, form of, of challenge at the moment in the church that we have got connections to, the network of churches in and around Hyderabad that the nature of national government is saying to those who are in the scheduled castes, in the, in the kind of low levels of the Indian society, to say on their official documentation, you have to declare now your faith. Hindu, Muslim, or Christian, and there's some others. 
And the reason they're wanting to do that, they say, is so that they can understand the nature of their population, like a census. But in reality, if those folk who are meant to be supported with food support and educational support and, and access to hospital and healthcare and opportunity for, for jobs. If it doesn't say Hindu, then help is withdrawn. And that impacts the children, impacts the family, in all sorts of ways. Housing may be harder to find, jobs dry up, sickness untreated. And so in, in conversation with our dear friends there, they, they've, they've kind of said, what, what do we do in this? When people are coming to say to us, will you sign this form to say that we want to change it to being, Christ, to being Hindu from Christian? We still believe, some of them are saying, or others saying, it's too difficult to walk with Jesus. The reality of following Jesus impacts every area of our life. There's an element in the Christian world, always has been, which says, turn to Jesus. It's brilliant, yes. But in doing so, life will become a bed of roses, plain sailing, health, wealth, and prosperity. It'll all be plain sailing. All your problems will disappear. There's an old chorus that has that line in it. And in one sense, it kind of is driving at a truth to say, in Christ, we are secure and safe, that he has rescued us once and for all. We are held in the palm of his hands. God is in control. Absolutely. But the reality of walking through this world is that it isn't always easy. Persecution, opposition, troubles, hardship, quarreling, difficulties, poverty, suffering are part of the mix. It's into that context that the writer to the Hebrews is speaking to the church because he knows that they are tired and weary. He knows that there are uh, opportunities uh, and pressure being exerted, perhaps from the Jewish background, definitely from the Roman background, even from amongst themselves because they've been waiting for Christ's return and he seems to be delayed. Is it worth it? Who is this Jesus? It's too tough. It would be easier and just make life more sensible and, and easier to manage and less kind of like on the knife edge just to step back to take a step back and let it kind of be partial maybe to not make it too obvious to water it down to accommodate in some fashion Maybe, and it seems in, indicative that the Hebrews were tired and persecuted, they were anxious, that they were struggling to hold on to their faith, and probably some were deserting, they were exhausted and in trouble. And we'll come to some texts which are kind of hard to swallow. What happens if you turn your back on Jesus? Can you come back? We'll get to that. But where are we today? Now, you're probably in your mind thinking, now, how does this connect to Hebrews 1 about angels? The writer 
both in the opening verses, 1 to 3, 4, and in the continuation, is very much saying Jesus is the Son of God, and he is much, much superior to angels. Absolutely. I don't know what your view about angels is or are. Scripture is full of angelic visitations, messengers, servants of God, ministering spirits. There's lots to be said. There's a lot of mystery. But they're definitely real. They are in the majority versus the evil spirits, the demonic, the fallen angels. That they seem to crop up, and even in, in the opening verses, that God spoke at many times through prophets in all sorts of ways. Angels appear to help and to, to bring an announcement. We just celebrated Chris, Christmas, and Gabriel, a named one, says, Behold, you will be the child. And it's not so much that the angels get a bad rap, or the Hebrew writer isn't trying to kind of say, you know, just, just put them to one side and, and don't think about them anymore. And, uh, you know, and it's all a little bit mysterious and a little bit new age and, you know, don't stop it. Because actually angels crop up later and he says, you know, you practice hospitality, watch out, you may be entertaining angels unawares. Wouldn't that be amazing? I wonder what they dress like. This is in the stories of, of uh, contemporary ones as well as biblical ones of the presence of angels helping. Uh, our friend Stacy talks about one recently that, that uh, some recently in the context of uh, South Central Asia, saying things a little bit obliquely because this is being recorded and, and so forth, but you kind of get what I'm talking about. And uh, when uh, there was uh, the, the new government was installed last year, uh, there was somebody who was a, a believer who had to flee from the capital city, uh, but they were troubled and they wanted to come back. And they, they discovered that their, their property hadn't been invaded because they were really strong people living there but the property was empty. And those who had come to, to, to pillage it and to take to rob all the things from it didn't go in because of these strong people that were there. There's again and again stories where the believers haven't seen, but those who've come to do bad have been aware that this is a place to avoid because the angels were there. Maybe you've got your own story. Some have. Tim's got a story about angels. Ask him about it in the Middle East. The writer isn't saying ignore them, but he is putting them in perspective. He asks, first and foremost, in verse 5, he asks a rhetorical question, and later on he asks the same Question in verse 13, to which of the angels did God ever say? It's a little bit like a bookend. It's called an inclusio to say that this section is bounded by this rhetorical question. To which of the angels did God ever say? And the answer is none. It's a way as, as this preacher, as this writer is saying this, and it's kind of to say, you know, congregation, to which of the angels did God ever say this? And they kind of go, well, and they're thinking, where in the scriptures might it? It's drawing them back to the Bible saying, oh, did he, did he? And then he illustrates uh, from Old Testament examples where the answer may be certain. 
It's a rhetorical question, and of course, there is nowhere in the Bible is there an obvious answer, and of course, you have rightly discerned and answered it. It was never said to angels. First, a, a quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. It's a verse that gets picked up again and again in the New Testament to underline and to, to reinforce that Jesus is God's son, that he is truly begotten of the Father. Not only in the psalm, but also in, in 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 7, where the, the Davidic covenant is formed and, and God, uh, God makes a promise to David. King David says, you will be my son and, and uh, there will always be a descendant of yours to reign and rule. And I shall be your father. Anyone who knew the Jewish history would say, well, that's amazing and astonishing that God should, should choose the line of David. But it goes terribly, terribly wrong. And alongside that, as the kings get more and more bleak and the leadership and the government seems to be more and more corrupt and in it for themselves, and, and the people are crying out, Lord, send us a good leader. Gosh, it's quite contemporary, isn't it? Uh, that God raises up this messianic hope to say, one will come. One will come who will fulfill all the expectations of Scripture and will determine for you the way to live, and it will be brilliant. You are my son. Today I have become your father. The implication that he is stating is you know that God raised the beloved son, Jesus from the dead. You've never heard about God doing that for angels or any other creature. And then moves on to say what God didn't say about angels from what he does say. He says about Jesus, the firstborn into the world, he said, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, verse 7, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. That Jesus takes the preeminence is far superior because he's uncreated. We've been told in the opening verses that he was with God in the beginning, that through him the whole of creation was made and is sustained the angels were made at his words. He is the firstborn, the one with all authority and privilege and will take inheritance. And the angels worship him. Jesus is the one they adore. It's there in the Old Testament. Hebrews links us very much back into the Old Testament and says it's now fulfilled and superseded through Jesus, but it really does help us to understand the enormity and the magnitude and the scope and the wonder of Jesus. For those who are really astute and look at the footnotes in your text and kind of go, oh, there's a little letter, and it refers you back to the text that you read it and you go, the Hebrew writer is really bad at quoting scripture. Is he on sort of some like uh, waxing lyrical campaign? That, that as you look back at the texts that are being quoted, 
back in Psalms and, and so forth, and Deuteronomy, you'd kind of think, that's not what it says in Hebrews. What's going on? Is he forgotten? Has the writer misremembered? Not at all. This is a little bit technical, but don't let it throw you off. That the, our version of the Bible, the Old Testament, is translated from the Hebrew. It's called the Masoretic text. Got there? Don't need to remember that word, but it's translated from the Hebrew. There was another translation of the Old Testament in the later Old Testament times. It was called the Septuagint. Maybe you've heard of that. Don't know. But that was translated by the, the, the Jewish community from Hebrew into Greek because by that point, because of the exile and there were people scattered all over the Mediterranean, there were a lot of Jewish people who didn't know Hebrew. And so they thought it's really important that they understand the scriptures. So well, let's translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek because that was the language that was common around the New Testament world. Thanks, Alexander the Great and all that bunch of Plato and so forth. Let's translate it into the Septuagint. And the Hebrew writer is quoting the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, not the version that we have which is based predominantly upon the Hebrew, although they do translate it and compare. So that's why you look back and say, that's not what it says. Have the editors got it wrong? Has the Hebrew writer got it wrong? Not at all. It's translating from the Greek version of the Old Testament. But what it's trying to underline is that the angels are created and Jesus is the one they adore. And in the way that it's, it's phrased... In verse, um, in verse 7, he makes his angels spirits and his servant flames of fire. He's kind of saying that these expressions of angelic beings are kind of transitory. They are like the wind which is here and gone, or a flame which burns and then dies up. That it is momentary. But rather the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is eternal. Of all ages, to all people, far eclipsing the momentary, the kind of occasional punctuation of our history by angelic beings. Or even in our life, Jesus is always the same yesterday, today, and forever, as he goes on to say towards the end of the book. That the sun never changes, that he is the creator and sustainer of all things, whereas the angels are creatures and Creation perishes, and, and it says here, like uh, th these things, like an old cloak just wear out, like a garment that gets old and tattered. They are with temporary measure. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. He underlines it and reinforces it and says, Jesus' authority is above everything. Verse 6 Your throne, O God, will last forever and Ever. Hallelujah. Forever and ever. Interesting, this passage is one of those places in the New Testament that explicitly underline that Jesus is God. Really important to see. Your 
throne, O God, is forever. Expressed about the Son. The link is really clear. If you want to ever argue with someone, is the Trinity in the Bible? How can you be sure Jesus is the Son of God, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit? Here's one of those texts, and there's all sorts of ways to get there, but this is one of them. If there's any ambiguity in your mind, is Jesus really just sort of a superhuman? No, he's fully God and fully human. The Son of God amongst us. This is one of those texts you could go to to underline it and be really, really sure. Hebrews writer says, the strife is over, the battle is done. Jesus is on the throne, that he's at the right hand of God, that he has triumphed over evil on the death, uh, through his death on the cross. That Jesus is superior. Angels are never saviors. They're only servants. But why is he writing that? Because you're probably going, yeah, I get that. I've known that since Sunday school. Maybe you haven't. I don't want to, to, to make light of genuine questions. But there comes the kind of point of what is the Hebrew writer confronting? Why is he spending these verses in chapter 1 kind of saying... Don't look at the angels, although they're good. They're ministering spirits sent to help God's people. They're real. You might entertain some unawares. They've got a purpose and a part. Is it because it's a bit like the church in Colossae, where where Paul really has to to go for this issue? Uh, In Colossians 2, uh, Paul writes to the churches in that region, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility in the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions about their unspiritual minds. Is that the issue? We don't know. We have to be a bit careful of reading across it. Maybe that there's, there's elements of, of people saying, well, well, angels just seem a little bit more exotic. They're tough and they're powerful and they have swords and they, they contend and fight battles against principalities and powers. Well, why wouldn't you want to focus on them? They're like, they're calling in the SAS of the spiritual guard. You know, hey, come on, angels. We need some. wrong to ask for God's help in any way. But Paul says, don't, don't let that distract you from the bigger picture, the awesomeness of Jesus. Because in Jesus we see this remarkable truth that God's glory and love and power is entirely manifest in Jesus Christ who suffers, who is a servant and confronts death and beats Satan and is risen. Recently, questions were posed to Phil and I about how is it that people, believers, can really go through the mill, even at the point of death, and it to be so much distress and agony. Where is the love and power of God to rescue? No simple answer to that. But we know full well that he is in the midst of suffering. As the Hebrew writer will say, he has experienced every facet of the range of human experience and remained faithful in it. In the midst of the black and the bleak and the desperate and the distress, 
he is with us. He journeys with us through it. And the confidence of this passage says he is on the throne and he is the one we worship and never take our eyes off. I think there is a little bit of a thing in our culture. I'm dating myself now. Did anyone used to watch South Park? It's a kind of a certain era when I was a teen. Some of us did. Like when I was a teenager, it was kind of like edgy and, and parents got upset by it because it was kind of rude and off the cuff. And there was one episode in it where there's a boxing match between, between Jesus and Damien. That's a cultural reference to another film. But it was kind of like Jesus and the... And the and Satan's son got in a boxing match, and they were having like, who's going to win? I was thinking of it as I was thinking of this passage, bizarrely. I didn't really watch it much. Do you remember Christopher? He's got a song called Spanish Train, I think it is. And it's this card game of poker that's set up between Satan and Jesus. Like they decide they're going to have this game for a soul. And the last line, and I looked it up on wonderful Google, uh, it said... The Lord and the devil are now playing chess. The devil still cheats and wins more souls. And as for the Lord, well, he's just doing his best. Utter nonsense. In the language of Hebrews, it's not there's an equal contest. He is far superior. This one lies and cheats and distorts and will do his utmost to sully Jesus but it's a no contest. The lamb wins. The lamb has won. Death is defeated. He will wipe away every tear and, and destroy every sickness and disease. As we come to the table, I think what the Hebrew writer is wanting to draw us towards and I started with this. In the challenges of life, it's quite easy to lose our gaze and have our gaze and eyes distracted from Jesus. Why do people backslide? Why do people walk away from the faith? Why do people doubt when it gets tough? For real reasons. But the Hebrew writer would tell us to fix our gaze and our thoughts back to Jesus. The true Jesus, the one revealed in Scripture, the one who reveals the very heart and nature of God himself. Jesus himself said, if you see me, you see the Father. Maybe the, the people under persecution and stress and the challenges of life were kind of worshipping Jesus, but they, they thought in their present moment of distress that he seemed to be of little help or comfort. They could see him, understood him to be the human being who was tortured and crucified and bloodied and bowed and humiliated. This Jesus of Nazareth, the one who suffered and shouted from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And wasn't able to answer the cry of those around, save yourself, you saved others. And he breathed his last and died. What sort of God is that? Just a brutal story. 
the victor of Rome squashing another person and crushing another life. But it's only part of the story. Easter Sunday, death is conquered. Maybe they understood that he was sharing in their sufferings, yes, but that longing in our hearts, can you transform this God? It's tough. I hate this moment in my life. Rescue me from it. Jesus, you're just too human, too vulnerable. I get it that you're alongside me, but I don't want you to be alongside me in this mess. I want you to take me into a better place. And sometimes people look elsewhere and leave. The Hebrew writer doesn't want to belittle their struggles. He doesn't offer platitudes to say, well, just look up or try harder, or, or things surely aren't really that bad. You're just a bit overcome or emotional. Or look on the bright side or pull yourself together. That's not what he says. That suffering and these challenges in life are authentic and the threats are real, and yet Hebrews wants to underline the truth. The truth in the immediate and beyond the immediate. That Hebrew reminds us that the Hebrews reminds us that the deepest and most trustworthy reality is Jesus, the Son of God, the very revelation of God, the longed hoped for, the long announced, the long anticipated. Jesus has come. He reminds them, we'll go on to this in, in chapter two, but a theme right through uh, the, the whole of the passage is that, that hear this, not simply see it. In chapter 4, that we confess the truth with our mouth, it becomes audible. 5, 12, study the oracles of God. Even in chapter 1, spoken by the Son. Maybe they longed for a gospel without the cross. There's a quick fix. A certain amount of, if you pray enough, God will kind of ka-ching, ka-ching, here's your result. But the way of Jesus is always through the cross. The way of discipleship is always through the cross. That's why partly we come again and again to this to say, this is Jesus amongst us. His blood, his body to strengthen us in the daily and the lived out challenges, but yet to bring hope and reassurance. There is no gospel that has a redemption without a cost. There is no way that, uh, uh, that, that you can make someone clean without a sacrifice. There is no faith often without pain and victory without obedience. There is no compromise in the gospel. No positive mindset or declare it and claim it. It is what it is. The Son of God came amongst us. He lived and died and was crucified under Pontius Pilate and on the third day rose and is ascended at the right hand of the Father and will come again. Where are you in life? I think sometimes we may not think, well, I'm not chasing after angels even though bookstores have a lot of things about angels. The Bible is the best place for that. But I do know there are temptations to begin to trust something or someone else. Maybe it's in the thing of religion, of law. I mean, that sounds nonsensical, but 
But at least with the law, we can measure ourselves and evaluate how well we're doing. Do you know the flip side of that is there's always someone who we know is worse, better, worse than us or not as good as us or they're, they're far behind me and we kind of think, I'm okay now. But not in comparison to Jesus. Law leads to death. Jesus brings life. If you're a fan of the Marvel series and, and all sorts of superheroes, these pseudo-saviors who are endowed with superhuman powers like Batman and Captain America... Great entertainment. But you know what? They're not like you and me. Because they've got superpowers. And we don't. And also, when you look at them, they're flawed. Batman, he's called the Dark Knight, isn't he? There's a really bad hinterland. Or Captain America or all those others. They're not really there when you need them. Jesus is. It might seem ironic, but again and again, we, we look to our politicians, bless them. They have power and authority, God-given, and they can bring betterment to our world, country, and community. Absolutely. We pray for them. I'm remember, reminded of, of uh, Tony Blair when he was elected in 97, the soundtrack. Things can only get better. Seems a little ironic now. Or with Donald Trump, his anthem, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. Of seeking to say, put your hope in me because I can make it better. Only Jesus does. It might be in the medical profession and the scientists, and we thank God for medics and doctors, clinicians and all those, and for the wonders of, of our science and technology, but they can't defeat death. Their help is partial and good, but partial. Sometimes people turn to families and relationships of uh, longing for a life partner and saying, my life is incomplete, I'm alone, if only. Or if my husband or my wife would believe or just change and be that which I have in my imagination, would be perfect for me. Or the children live their life, children become their God. Hebrew says no. It's not about the angels or all these other places that may take our gaze for a moment. It's truly about him, Jesus. The son of God who suffered and died. The gospel and new life and the answer, as Hebrews write it, this deep dive into truth that says this is the bedrock, this is the certainty, this is the moment we do again and again and tell of and declare that this longed-for gospel came with a cross. The redemption was bought at great cost through his blood and life. That we are made clean through his willing, obedient, complete sacrifice. That the journey of faith was a journey through pain and victory came through his humble obedience. May we not 
compromise the gospel or create an image of a God who would ultimately, that would be false. Jesus is. Jesus is. Let's pray. Just invite the band.